Okay, Psalm chapter 2. So just look, if you just, here's maybe something you maybe think of during the week. Uh, just looking at the world around you and observing the culture. If you ever turn on the TV, which usually is a bad thing because things get very, very interesting, very frustrating very quickly. Uh, but you probably see things on TV that maybe you are concerned about. Um, there is constant madness. I would say that the world is potentially going insane at the moment, every day it seems like. Whether it's politicians or just people in general, there's just, there's rage, there's anger, there's, I mean, it's, it's everywhere. Things are going haywire. The rebellion in the world is getting louder and louder. Uh, not a day goes by that perhaps many of you are astonished about how do we get here? This, how do we get here so quickly? What, what's happened? Uh, maybe you fear the world you live in today. Maybe you, you have actual fear. Maybe you fear those who will come after you like your children, your grandchildren, your friends. The Bible says that there's nothing new under the sun in regards to sin and madness in the world. <clears throat> so this isn't anything new. Uh, this is what happens when we live in the world of sinners. But at times, the world does seem to almost peak, like there's like a high point. Like, well, this, this seems like a high point right now with all this cra craziness in the world. The, the culture seems more toxic. Sinners seem more obstinate. And the government seems to be further removed from Romans chapter 13, which is their, their responsibility to uphold that. So the question maybe you have, that I have sometimes that I wrestle with when we have doubts in the world, who's in charge? Why is the world going so crazy? Is, is anybody in control of this world? Is someone, is someone in charge of what's happening? When everyone seems to have lost their minds and openly defy God, what is happening? What are we to think? Well, in Acts chapter 4, so if you look in your, in your uh, Bibles here in Psalm chapter 2, it doesn't give an author who wrote Psalm chapter 2, but the book of Acts chapter 4 says that David wrote this. And David opens up the world, or he looks at the world around him, and he tells us of the madness that he sees, and then he kind of gives us what heaven says in response. So Psalm 2 can be summarized very simply, when the, when the nations rage, remember that Jesus reigns. That's the whole sermon in a, in a sentence. When the nations rage, remember that Jesus reigns. That's the whole psalm in a, in a, in a verse. So the things we're going to read in this psalm are very encouraging. Some are frightening, some are alarming, but they should be very encouraging for you. So let's, let's jump in. Uh, it, most of your Bibles probably have the, the psalm breaking up in like four sections of three verses. That's actually really helpful. That's kind of the direction I'm going to take it. So if you have that, the first chunk is verses one through three. And that's, we're going to look at the world speaking to God, what's happening. So look at verse one. The psalmist asks the question, uh, kind of the question, why do the nations rage? Um, it doesn't seem to be a question of cause, right? So we know why people do evil things. We have... Revelation. Why do people do crazy things? Well, because they're sinners, right? We know why. James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 very simply says, why do you war for things? Why do you fight? Well, it's because you have sin. So we know that's not, that's not what he's asking. The question could be better understood. Why do the nations bother? Why are they acting crazy? What are you hoping to accomplish? Uh, the world is set upon overthrowing our Creator uh, the collective nature of the world, all nations in this passage says they are doing something that is utterly hopeless. Um, Isaiah chapter 40 is probably one of the, the most amazing chapters in the Bible. Isaiah 40, kind of through about 
46, 45, there's just amazing things. There. So that's one of the things that Isaiah says in Isaiah 40, verse 15. He says this, Behold the nations, so all the nations, every, every rule you can think of, every government, every army, every power, are like a drop from a bucket and are counted on dust as the scale. So when you were to, to weigh food in the, in the farmer's market in downtown Israel on Main Street, you would dust off the scales so there's no extra weight. That's what the nations are like to God. They're just like dust, like a, a drop in a pail of a bucket. This is why the psalmist is asking that this question is insane. Why are you bothering? You're like a drop in a bucket. Why are you doing? Can you imagine perhaps an army of trees trying to wage war against the blazing sun? Or all the sandcastles on, on the beach saying, let's fight this tsunami that's coming. What would you think? Well, that's insane, right? It's, it's, it's hopeless. That's, that's, that's the picture we're getting here. Look at verse 2. This is the, the continuing of what man's rebellion looks like. The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So this seems to be an unfair match, right? You have uh, all the kings of the world, so... A hundred, I don't know, just pick a number, a hundred, against the Lord and his anointed. That's not really fair. It's all against two. But ironically, the, the unfairness is kind of switched the other way around, isn't it? The nations are a drop in the bucket against the Lord, against Yahweh. This, it, this wasn't, it isn't even fair to call this a battle. A battle assumes there's going to be a fair fight. This is not a fair fight. They are setting themselves up against the Lord and against his anointed. Uh, what is the who is what is the anointed? What's that mean? Who is the anointed? The anointed means a consecrated one, someone who's chosen or set apart. Uh, think of the the priests in the Old Testament. Think of a king; they are set apart. Uh, we understand the anointed one to be in the New Testament the the Messiah. So very quickly, we can con- conclude that this is the Father and the Son. This is the anointed is Jesus Christ. He is the Lord's anointed. He's the one the. He's when the Father chose to do the work, right? And then you have this, the UN, the United Nations opposed together. They look like a powerhouse. They look like the A-team, right? They got all this military power, all these people. We're going to overthrow God. We're going we're gonna to finally do it. I think you could summarize this whole act in one word. Dumb. This is just dumb. It doesn't make any sense. And it doesn't even get any better. Look at verse 3. Their attack is not to throw swords or to shoot an arrow. What do they do? We're just going to yell. <laughs> we don't like what you're doing. right? The nation don't have any power to do anything. They just yell. They just speak. right? Let us burst our, his bonds. Let us cast away his cords. Of course, these aren't actual bonds. People don't have actual ropes on them or bindings. But this is a way of talking about God's rule and God's order in the universe. Uh, again, in Acts chapter 4, the apostles, the early church cites this passage referring to Herod, Pilate, the Jews and Gentiles all counseling together uh, to crucify Christ. So the nations did gather to kill Jesus and they still gather to do this today. So what's the bottom line? The bottom line is this. This is what every sin ultimately is, friends. Sin is the casting off, the bursting off of the Lord's rule in your life. Um, sin is seeking autonomy. Do you know what the word autonomy means? Um, if you just break it down very simply, the word auto means self, right? And um, onomy, like theonomy, God's law, onomy means law. So 
Autonomy means self-law, self-rule. So what sin is is saying, I don't want to do what you say. I want to do what I say. I don't want to obey anybody. I want to obey me, uh, me, myself, and I, right? I will decide what I do. I'll decide what's best in life. I'll choose what morality is right. I'm the captain of my soul. Just get away. Uh, so therefore, all sin is first and foremost a casting off, a rejection of God's law. Sin is always against God first, most seriously and most severely. Psalm 51 says this, when David committed the atrocious, atrocious sin, right? When he, had, uh, he slept with Bathsheba and had Uriah killed. And what does he confess in Psalm 51? Against who have I sinned? Against you and you only, against the Lord. But you killed a family. Well, yeah, but it's always against God primarily. On a large scale, you probably see this in our culture where we are raging as a culture collectively against God's definitions of what male and females are, that we can't even use those terms because we can't even distinguish what a woman actually is or what a man is. Uh, we multiply the genders because we don't agree with the chords. Well, God says there's two. We don't agree. We think there's 90. We want more than two. It doesn't make any sense. We, we want to redefine marriage. No, I'm going to tell you what marriage is. Lord, you just get in the back seat. We'll tell you what it is, right? This is what sin is. And maybe you're even just snickering to yourself. This is, this is delusional, right? This is, I mean, you, you guys see the news. This is insane. It doesn't make any sense. This is what happens when we seek autonomy from God. In order to be free, we actually become more enslaved. The Bible says that no one is actually free. And John chapter 8, Jesus said that when we sin, we are sin because we are slave to our sin. So in the hopeless irony, when the world seeks to depart from God's created order, to do our own thing, you know what happens? Things get worse. You actually start, you're not free. You'll be free from God's rule. You're actually enslaved to your own sins. It's a hopeless irony. And this is what makes the gospel so magnificent, isn't it? That while we, in our sin, in our rebellion against God, that God took counsel in heaven in eternity past apart from us to save us. Isn't that stunning? That while we are planning our lives against the Lord before we are converted, we want to go after him and usurp his rule, that eternity ago, God was planning your redemption. Isn't that amazing? Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, calls Jesus the Lamb of God who was slain from the foundation of the world. So Jesus' death for you uh, has been planned forever ago while you were plotting against him. Isn't that just amazing that his, his love for you and his, his mercy towards you is just simply stunning? This is what captivates us to love him is that his love towards us is so great while I was far off and rebellious. How could I treat others the same who are far off? No, no one's too wicked for me to talk to. I was so bad, and Jesus came to me. He gave me new life. So that's why in Romans chapter 6, Paul can say that we, we are not to let sin reign or have dominion in our bodies because we love Christ. I was reading in my devotions maybe a couple days ago uh, when Jacob is hired to work for Laban to work for a wife, and he says, work seven years, and I'll give you a wife. Okay. And... Uh, the, the account in Genesis says it seemed to Jacob but a few days. Seven years, a few days, was a pretty good job, right? Well, isn't that how the, the Christian life seems? 
It's a long path. It's a long road. But if you, if you love Christ, it just seems like, just like a few days. It's sweet, right? So therefore, we must run not at God as sinful man does, but run to him. Look to him that he is your creator. and He's, he's gracious. And he frees us from our slavery to become slaves of God. So that's the nations. Look at, look at God's response in verses 4 through 6. So how would you respond if, if, someone, if you were a, a military captain and someone knocks on your door and says, Hey, uh, the British are coming. They're coming quick. Right? All the, the UN is coming. What would you do? Well, you'd probably scream. Right? You'd jump up out of your chair. Oh, why? What should we do? We've got to get, get the troops ready. Right? We've got to prepare. We've got to fight. But look what happens in verse 4. What does God do? He laughs. I think when God laughs, he should probably be terrified. That's kind of the point. Look what's happening. So he sits, he who sits in the heavens laughs. So God is seated. He is enthroned above the universe, right? As the, as the supreme. Instead of standing up to get the troops ready, God just, I'm fine in my easy chair. Nothing to worry about. I'm the king, right? No, no fear. He's supreme. He's God after all. He's in the heavens, so he's not above earth. The earth, the Bible says, is God's footstool. The ocean is like his wash bin, right? That's how high he is. God literally looks down upon everybody, right? Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah sees the Lord, what does he say? I saw the Lord high and lifted up, right? This is how high he is. He's very high above everything. And then his response is laughter. It's not because there's a funny joke. Angels didn't tell God a joke. He's laughing. Because this, is, this is mockery. This is God mocking the world. How else do you expect a sovereign God to respond with threats? Probably just like a, yeah, I'm real terrified. The nations are raging. I'm going to laugh. The Lord holds them in derision, so he, he keeps them. In, he keeps them. He's, he's over them. They have fear that grabs them. Uh, there was a, I think a tornado actually touched down a couple towns away this week, I believe, right? Is that accurate? Or maybe Wednesday. Um, would you think it crazy if someone were to walk outside and get away, tornado, yell, get out of here? What would you think? You're crazy, right? And so, is, this, is, the, is the picture you're getting? These people are raging against a tornado and God's, what are you hoping to change, right? It's, it's, it's mockery. This is it's just crazy, right? This is the, this is the, the picture we should see. Look at verses 5 and 6 here. We see that the Lord himself responds with words. So they speak, and when God responds, we should be very quick to listen. But first he responds with wrath and fury. What is God's wrath? God's wrath is a perfect response from a perfect God, right? We know that God is holy, God is just, and he is good. And therefore, because he is good, God will always respond with wrath towards sin and sinners, right? If God were to not respond with wrath, we should be very troubled. You'd not be a good judge. Again, I used to work at a courthouse. If the judge ever responded with judgment against a criminal, that would be a bad judge. I want him kicked off the throne, right? Kicked off the, the bench. Same here with the Lord. Here's a question that's often asked that I hope you'll, uh, you'll give me a, a brief minute to unpack for you. It's often said that we should... Uh, love the sin, or I'm sorry, <laughs> love the sin. Hate the sin and love the sinner. We should do that. Is that correct? I think a thousand percent, yes, it is. You should do that. Does God do that? Does God hate the sin and love the sinner? 
I want to tell you that according to the Bible, the answer is yes and no. Let me explain. So God is his attribute. So when we say God is love, God is merciful, he is gracious, he is holy, he is good, that means that he is all of those things at once, right? He's not three parts good, half love, and then a third righteous, right? He's full. All of them are full. There's no uh, budding of attributes. God is his attributes, right? He is holy, holy, holy. He is love. He does all things well. If you have your Bibles, you can probably look next door to the two chapter at, at Psalm chapter five, and it's a, this is a very shocking text that I don't know. If I, I've, I remember teaching on a Bible study years ago, and I had a guy fight me on it. Uh, I think at Culver's, I believe he's very angry. But this is what the text says: uh, Psalm chapter five, verses four and five says this: For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. So far, he hates sin. We're very clear. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evil doers. Verse 6 says he abhors. Well, how do we deal with that? How can God hate? That doesn't make any sense. I thought he couldn't do that. Remember that God cannot sin. It is not wrong to hate evil, right? Absolutely not. Do you guys hate abortion? Yeah, you do, because it's evil, right? So God, because he is God, can perfectly, without sin, truly hate and love sinners. So don't think I'm just saying he hates all sinners, we're all going to hell. He's not, I'm not saying that. He can do both, because he's God. We cannot do that, because 99.9% of the time, my anger is against sinful things. I'm sinful myself, right? But God is not sinning at all and hating, right? Psalm chapter 7, verse 11, just simply says that God is angry at the wicked every day. So therefore, God can truly hate and love sinners. Only he can do this. And we see this in the cross, don't we? God didn't just punish sin on the cross, right? When Jesus took your place, what did he take the place of? Well, people, me, right? That was God's wrath towards not just my sin, but towards Cale, towards me, that's where, that's where the love of God is so bright and his, his attitude towards sin is so clear. That's why it killed the Son of God. So Jesus died for sinners because he loves them and God sent his son to die for sinners because he has real wrath towards them. He has a real hatred towards them. But again, we see this is done righteously. God is not sinning in this. I hope you understand that. He, he's not sinning, right? He can do this justly. Now look at verse 6. Now he speaks in verse 6, As for me, I have set my king on Zion. Okay, well, back truck up here. What is Zion? All these language, all these words aren't that. What's Zion? Uh, Zion was like a fortress, kind of think of like a castle. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, that King David conquers in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, he rebuilds it, puts like a royal palace there. And it becomes kind of the, the main fortress between, uh, it's, it's where the Israelites hunker down at, it's where God meets with David at. So it becomes to become this place of synonymous rule with, well, this is where God meets his people and where we hear the promise of the, the son of David that will rule from the world. So again, think of this is a, a heavenly idea that the son of David will be the anointed king, right? So we know that Jesus is seated in Zion, in, in the heavenly Zion, you could say, right? And this section, friends, should remind us that it is good news that God will never let sin or sinners go unpunished. Do you ever think about that? 
He does this primarily in two ways. Number one, there are temporal consequences. So if you look at Romans chapter 1, verse 18, through the end of the chapter, the Bible says that God gives people up to their rebellion. He just, if you maybe want to say, he just backs off. You want to run that direction? You go for it. Go ahead and run, right? That's, God can, he'll let you reap what you sow, right? Just a couple of examples to maybe help you understand. You want to pursue drugs? You, you go for it. You're going to get poor. You're going to get addicted. Probably go to jail. You might overdose. You want to run? You run, right? You want to be lying the rest of your life? You lose friends. You break your marriage. You get fired from work. You'll get imprisoned, invading taxes, right? It's all these, again, the, the chief example that Paul uses in Romans 1 is actually the sin of homosexuality. To pervert God's design leads to disease. Do you know that homosexuals do not live very long? Are you aware of that? It is terribly sad. They lifespan is drastically shorter than most people. Earlier deaths, families are ruined, there's diseases. This is part of God's wrath. You, you want to run? You run. Go ahead and run. Secondly, we see that there are eternal consequences. Second Thessalonians chapter 1 speaks of God's punishment of sinners and Satan in hell forever. Because every sin is against the Lord, he will have his day in court. Uh, Jesus spoke about hell more than any other person in the entire Bible. He himself will judge the world. Genesis 18 says, The judge of all the earth will do right. And I know you guys know this because this is one of your only hopes in life. You know by experience that when the legal system in our country steps in to do things, it's never enough. The death penalty just, I mean, yeah, that guy should get it, but it just doesn't feel like it's enough. That's not fair. That's all he gets, that. You think of the Uvalde shooter in Texas. He got shot by police. He wipes out, what, 15 kids, 16 kids? All he does is get shot. That's it. That's not fair. Right? That's it? That's not it. Because what about justice being done? Friends, know that that young man stood before God that very hour. It was taken care of. Justice is a good thing. And that should make you tremble. It makes me tremble. But I'm so glad God has not just let things go. Think, you know what? I'll just let it go. He will judge. This is why having a Christian worldview makes sense in a world gone haywire. We know what justice is. We love justice. This is what makes the church so captivating that God actually speaks to us. He speaks through his word, through the word in Christ. And he rules here. He rules on the church as an earthly Zion. And what is God's first command to obey him as a Christian? Do you, I think Don Ray actually mentioned it today in his Sunday school lesson. What's the first command uh, if you're a Christian? Repent, trust Christ, and what? Be baptized. It's the first command. So the way we show allegiance to our king is through baptism. So if you've not been baptized, we need to talk about that. But we experience the rule of Christ, the king in our hearts. He summons us to him. And now we obey him by the spirit in us. Um, C.S. Lewis has this illustration of, um, Chadwick gets illustration very well about redoing a whole house. So when you have someone redo your house, you think, oh, yeah, just like the gutters would be fine. So when God steps in to renew a house, to renew your heart, you think, 
just the gutters need work and maybe like a front door. We think we're not really that, that messed up or that crooked, but we then see that the Lord walks in, just starts kicking down doors in your, in your heart and kicking down walls and rechanging this. And you're thinking, what are you doing? You're reminding ourselves that if God's going to dwell in your heart as the king, he intends to redo your entire life. Not just little sins we think, oh, deal with this one, and then I'll be good. That's what I wish he would do. But he goes further, and he guts your whole house. So at work, work for your king. At home, work for your king. In all parts of your life, work for your king. Work for your king. Be a faithful employee, faithful husband, faithful wife, faithful friend, faithful daughter, as servants to your king and all you do. Thirdly, the power of Christ. Look at verses 7 through 9. Now we see that Jesus is going to take center stage here. He's going to act. He's going to, so we should, we should pause and listen. David writes of the decree, this royal proclamation from Yahweh. So this is what God is saying about his son. So this is important. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So this Davidic king who is, as the song says, David's son, yet David's Lord, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Both Acts 13 and Hebrews chapter 1 and 5 specifically say that Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 is about Jesus. So we have extra reason to think, yeah, we got it right. We have no reason to doubt. This is about Jesus. So maybe you're wondering what's happening. So the, the nations are mocking. They're, they're declaring. And now God declares and says, well, this is my son. You, you can mock. This is my Christ. This is my son. Seed above all earthly powers. He's the king of all these kings, right? But this language here, if you're like me, you read it, and it's kind of difficult. What's it mean that Jesus is begotten? I thought, what do you mean today? You're, I thought he, you've always been the son. What do you mean today? So if you have a King James, I think it's the only translation that actually nails this part right. In John 3, 16, I, if I think it right, it does say um, the only begotten son. Is that accurate? John 3, 16 and King James. I think it's the only translation that has that, the phrase begotten son. Well, we read in, in uh, again, Donald Ray, I'm, I'm taking all your lesson today. Uh, and the genealogies, genealogies always say, so-and-so begat, so-and-so he begat, so-and-so he begat. He begot somebody, right? It means to have a son. It means to have someone come from you, right? Well, there's a unique way in which the Father, God the Father and God the Son do that. But they don't do that in the same way that we do, right? So Jesus was never created, right? He's self-existent. He's God the eternal Son, right? So we recognize that the Father is unbegotten. He's not begotten from anybody, but the Son is eternally begotten from the Father. As, the, as a Father and a Son on earth, so the Son is of the Father, but eternally. There's no creation of Jesus. There's no, He became a Son. He's always been one, but His relationship to the Father must be distinguished by He is the Father and Jesus is the Son, the only begotten Son, uh, begotten from all time, uh, we sing this song at Christmas, Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing, right? Word of the, that's He's the only begotten Word of the Father, right? So it means that he's been in the, I think John 1 says he's in the bosom of the Father. He's the only begotten. How about the word today? Was there a day when Jesus was begotten? Well, Acts chapter 13 and Romans chapter 1 says it most clearly, says this. That Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection. So what does that mean? It means that when Jesus rose from the dead, he was already the Son of God. We know that. He's, he's God, right? But on that day, Jesus declared in power. 
right? That, is, that, that was the, the clearest vindication, the clearest evidence of, yep, that's God the Son. Does that make sense? So we've always known that he's been the Son, but on the day, when you can beat death when you want to, you're God. We understand that, right? This is the day that he was declared to be the Son of God in power. As he came on earth to be the God-man, he took on a new office, he became the Messiah, he became a person, and was declared to be the Son of God in public. Uh, one writer writes that that's very helpful. I hope, you'll, hope you're here. But after Jesus had accomplished the work the Father gave him, he was exalted on high as the God-man, as the Messiah. Jesus then had the authority given to him by the Father that he had in his pre-incarnate state. So before he came to earth, he, could, he was acting and ruling as God. But on earth, he kind of suppressed those, those attributes and those is ruling, and then he was reinstated as he ascended to heaven. Meaning this, primarily, what, what's takeaway? That Jesus Christ is undefeatable. You have an omnipotent Christ. Every foe, every power, every nation, all demons and the devil, all your sins are outgunned. They got no chance against Christ. He created the universe, says John 1. He holds all things by the power of his word, Hebrews chapter 1. All things exist for him, Colossians chapter 1. And he is the authority to forgive your sins in Mark chapter 2. So the question is this, are you a needy Christian? I sure am. <laughs> Lord, I need this, I need this, I need this. I'm too weak, I can't believe, I need help. I mean, I, am, I need, 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 need. And I'm a toddler, and I need more than he does. But you have a sufficient Christ. Fear not, little flock. The shepherd of your souls will keep you to the end. He who governs the nations, isn't he so tender with us, his sheep? Isn't he gentle with you? Maybe you think, I have so many sins, Kale. This week, I have just, I have tanked it. My sins, they are many. Well, Jesus would respond, well, my mercy is more. Do you have a lot of burdens? Are you burdened? Are you weak and heavy laden? Jesus will bear it. So we can walk through life not because we are strong, but because we have Christ. Look at verses 8 and 9. We read this, more of the authority of Christ. Ask of me, I will give you the nations as your inheritance, as your heritage, sorry, and the ends of the earth as your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. The Father simply hands over the nations to Jesus like a gift. You guys ever give gifts to people? Here you go, this is for you. Imagine God just holding the nations in his hand saying, here you go, this, they're all yours. That's how big God is. He just hands over the entire universe to Jesus like it's a present. It's all yours, you earned it, take it. So how sovereign, is, I mean, how big of a picture do you need, do you need in the psalm? This God is huge. He just hands over the entire world just like it's a gift. Proverbs 21.1, if there's ever a verse you should have memorized for voting season, it is Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1, and it says this, the king's heart, so name any president, name any king, any governor, you name mayor, doesn't matter as you name him, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. They have zero power. They don't do a darn thing. They got nothing. They can't do anything unless God wills it. And we know this to be true. We know that in the Old Testament, you see these examples that Pharaoh was raised up by God to display his power. 
The kings were given over to Joshua to conquer the land. Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, the king of Assyria in Isaiah 37. I could go on and on and on. Every king in the Bible is always shown to be very powerful to men when it comes to God. Very, very small. Everyone is clay in the potter's hands. Look at verse 9. We see again the wrath of Jesus Christ, that the line of Judah will judge his enemies. He will break them. He will dash them to pieces. Um, Every... uh, at FedEx maybe two weeks ago, I believe. Um, so we, we have different people load our trucks so we get turnovers, and like like crazy turnover rate at FedEx. And I had a guy load my truck. He's been here for a couple of years, but he's not on my belt. And his name is Nero. That, ring, that name ringing bells to you? A guy named Nero killed thousands of Christians thousands of years ago. And of course, we had a good talk about what that name means and why things important. We talked about the gospel. But uh, Nero used to be a name people would fear, right? You, you hear that name, you freak out. Nero's, Nero's reigning, we're all dead, right? Caesar's in charge, we're dead. Uh, every Nero, every Caesar, every Pharaoh, Jesus has just dashed to pieces. None of them will last. When Jesus commands their death, they die. Just a, a good example, Vladimir Putin one day will be a footnote in a textbook. You're not going to be here. Jesus rules over them too. And then the last enemy to destroy, the Bible says, is death. Jesus will destroy death, and he already has. He'll destroy it for you. Instead of breaking his enemies, Jesus instead dies for his enemies. Isn't that amazing that your king dies for rebels? He died for me, that I was a rebel. And the king didn't just say, banish off with you, Kale. What did he do? He died for me. The king dies for his subjects. John Wesley wrote this. I'm sorry, Charles Wesley. Wrong, wrong Wesley. He breaks the power of canceled sin and sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. So when Jesus died, he broke the, the penalty of my sin, which was paid on his death. He is now breaking the power of my sin in life progressively. And one day I'll be break, broke free, rather, from the presence of sin In heaven, your king will set you free. That should be refreshing. He can bind your kingly sins. He can conquer your stubborn sins. You guys all have a sin that you can't let go of. I sure do. I got one or two or 12 or I don't know how many, a bunch probably. Why do I keep doing that? Why do I think that way? Why Why do I respond this way? Those sins that keep occurring, what do you do? Who do you go to? Who you go to Christ? Who can break the power of your sin, right? I can't think of the movie where this comes from, but you guys all know this scene. So let's say there's this good guy who thinks he's really strong and tough, and all the enemy in front of him runs away, and he's like, it was all me. And then behind him, there's this really big other person behind him, right? And they're scared of that guy. You know, I can't, there's movies to do all the time, but he's like, yeah, it was all me. And behind him, there's this really big creature that scares him all away. Well, that's how our sins are. We think, I could do this. And your sins flee, not because of you, because of Christ behind you. We should be encouraged by our king. Lastly, last two verses, very quickly here, verses 10 through 12, that God commands a response. So what should be the response of the earthly rulers? What should governors and presidents think about God? What, should, what is the church required to tell the government? First, that you should be wise and be warned. Don't be a fool. 
You guys ever swim at a beach and see the sign that says, warning, riptide? You know what I always do with those signs? Yeah, whatever. It's a warning, right? Or you hear smoke alarms or tornado warning. You should heed these warnings and do what they say. These are warnings. So first, be wise and heed the warning. And what is the beginning of wisdom? You guys all know this verse. The beginning of wisdom is what? The fear of the Lord. I'm glad you said that. Look at the next verse. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. So God commands us to be obedient to him as his servant, to serve him as servants, right? To, to flee to him, to throw yourself at his mercy. So we are called as the church. So there's this idea that church and state should be separate, which is true. Uh, it's not in the Constitution. It's not in any really federal document. It's in a letter that Jefferson wrote to people. But the church's job is actually to tell the government what to do. You can't enact these laws. You cannot act this way. You cannot sin in this way. You're supposed to do it with fear and trembling and rejoice. So fear, fearing the Lord and rejoicing in the Lord are not at odds. They're actually tied together. If you fear the Lord, you will rejoice in him. Lastly, in verse 13, we see this. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled, and blessed are all those, I'm sorry, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Uh, yesterday, there was a funeral uh, across the street. You guys probably knew that. I didn't know that until Kelly told me, and Jude watched the excavator dig the, the grave. Um, I got back from work, and these, the men were outside, and as you're probably guessing, they're held hostage by a job after the funeral's gone. And I'm a pastor, and you better believe I'm going to talk to them. And so I did. And it was their last funeral, so they had time to talk. One of the men told me that he, he loves God, he believes God, and et cetera, et cetera. Not a Christian believes in reincarnation or something. The Bible is very clear here that you must serve the Lord, but also you must kiss the Son. Meaning, um, you can't just say, well, I believe in God, I trust Him, and not have Christ. If you don't have Christ, you don't have God. Right To say, well, I pray to God all the time, He hears me. Well, you're a Christian? Well, no. Well, He doesn't hear you. So fleeing to God means fleeing to Christ, right? First John 2 says, No one who denies the Son has the Father, but whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Friends, this is good news. I hope you see the, the marvelous power of your Christ, that Jesus is the Creator, He's your King, He's your Judge, and he is our Savior. He knows no ends. So in the end, we could say this line together. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Jesus Christ is your king. He's a good king. Let's pray.